And so in some ways, I think that true crime story, I mean, boogeyman is like the right word for it. It's like, look over there at that scary thing. Don't actually look at what is much more likely, much more common, um, and in its own way, like more chilling. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Rachel Monroe. She is a writer and volunteer firefighter living in Marfa, Texas. Her work has appeared in the Best American Travel Writing 2018, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New York Times Magazine, and elsewhere. I am specifically talking to her about her excellent book, Savage Appetites, True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. And I've just fell down this incredible rabbit hole after reading Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, about the Golden State Killer. And it is so weird. And uh, after kind of just discovering that places like CrimeCon um, are like 90% women and the tonality of these events, which you can see in the documentary based on McNamara's book, uh, is, is joyful. It's delightful. It, it's so upbeat as the most macabre, um, malevolent details are, are laid out about these crimes. I thought, what the fuck is going on here? And uh, my good buddy Glenn Stout recommended this book and, and reaching out to Rachel and she generously came on. And so her book, uh, according to the New York Times Book Review, is enthralling. Monroe zeroes in on the aftermath of murder, on the morbid curiosity that draws eager civilians toward the crime scene and catapults them into starring roles. She avoids the formulaic professional tropes of true crime. Monroe has a knack for nosing a new story out of an old one, like a detective casting fresh eyes on a cold case. It is such a good book. It's so interesting and thought-provoking and well-written and uh, was exactly kind of what I what I was looking for. And, and as I'm sure you may have yourself, I instantly wanted to talk to her about every point in it. And so uh, I'm delighted that she, she gave me a little bit of time. So I hope you enjoy this week's guest on Tourist Information, Rachel Monroe, and go get her book. Yeah, I, I really loved your book, and, and thank you for talking to me today. I appreciate it. Oh, my gosh, of course. Did you finish your Bloomberg thing? Yeah, yeah. Just a, a horrible review of um, a, Mike, <laughs> a Mike Tyson series that is just the most unnecessary, redundant, pernicious thing I've seen in a long time. Well, that seems like at least it would be fun to write about, or no? Um, <clears throat> it. It is interesting, I think, in a similar way, in some respect, it dovetailed with some of what you touched on, which is how does somebody go away for rape mm -hmm. and admit to having six to eight things that he's done that are even worse than that and comes out far more marketable than when he went in? Whew. And what's the answer? What do you think? Well, I mean, I, I don't think Dancing with the Stars is likely to have... Harvey Harvey Weinstein get a furlough right. from jail to come on and enter or naked and afraid having um, what's his what's his name Anthony Weiner join on or, or OJ Simpson <laughs> joining the cast of The Bachelor and yet, <laughs> and yet Tyson gets this interesting pass in society maybe he's been grandfathered in but it's right 
or it's like what he did is not that different from his original brand or whatever, right? Yeah. So there's not this sort of like this disjunct of like, wait, I thought I knew him, but I didn't. It's like, well. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, some of these cultural figures, I, I think the implications of our, very much like your book, our attachment to the darkness is far more complex and compelling and avoided than the ostensible mm. darkness of of what that person is doing out in the culture who we say, well, oh, we're at a safe distance and we're not really in any way responsible for our attraction to it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, totally. So I would love to just start with with how did this book come about? Because I found you after reading, I think what we both agreed was a very bizarre book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and I watched the documentary, and I had so many questions that were not raised in the book or, or in the documentary. Um, and then talking to Glenn Stout, he mentioned your book, and I just immediately went over to Barnes & Noble on Broadway to devour it. But I, I was like, there's not a lot of literature on this subject matter that you were touching upon. Yeah, it's interesting because there's, there's on the one hand, so much, like such a glut of true crime content, but it all seems like so... It often seems to me that it has like blinders on it, like looks so narrowly at, you know, whatever the case in question is and like refuses to look kind of beyond or around or behind that particular case. Um, and and I think it was partly that my own um, curiosity about about why that is and my dissatisfaction that there weren't more books doing that kind of thing that that led me to writing it in the first place. I mean, it's funny because I I also I had been following a lot of the the stories that I write about in the book for a long time and it was in this I mean, in in some ways we're always like I think as human beings like living at a a time a true crime boom, like it's such a persistent topic of interest for just like people. Um but this current this current phase of it that I think is like really driven by by podcasts and by like streaming limited series um, that hadn't quite taken off yet. So in some ways I was feeling like very alone in my um, fascination and my my questions and my questing. Um, and that's often I think like a good place for a book to begin where you're just like, I feel so alone and alienated and confused and I want other people to be confused with me. That'll mm. make me feel better. <laughs> hmm. And how did you come upon this strategy of, of exploring these themes through four major stories? I think that part of my, part of what made me feel frustrated or dissatisfied with the, the answers that were around um, to the question, you know, why are people and specifically women so drawn to these stories of true crime. Um, the answers that were available at the time felt really like limited and overdetermined and simplistic. Um, and it seemed to me that there were like a lot of different, sometimes competing um, strains. Um, there was, you know, a version, I think there's like a version of fascination with true crime that can be really reactionary and that can sort of say you know this this 
crime is something that exists, you know, out there and it's committed by bad people and they menace, you know, good people like me. I am a potential victim and that's the only role that I could, you know, occupy in this. And we need to, you know, shore up power and lock the bad guys up and restore the world to the, you know, the natural order, you know, that should be there. That's one strong strain in true crime. But then at the same time, there's this like competing energy that's there sometimes, you know, in the same like true crime story or um, that can be gleaned from, you know, the same subject matter looked at in a different way. That's like, no, actually, like our systems are are truly, you know, screwed up. And you, you can look at a story of a of a murder or a kidnapping or, you know, a cult or like a murderous cult and like start to see where you know who gets power who doesn't have power who is vulnerable who who isn't vulnerable who is listened to who isn't listened to and so they're like just these this kind of i don't know the the reactive strains and the the kind of more dismantling or questioning energy like that's all there and so it just seemed to me like any any book that was going to wrestle with like why what true crime is doing and, and the draw to it would have to like look at these different energies and look at it from a bunch of different points of view. Um, and it's also just a fun structure for a book, right? Like for sure, sure. sort of four different stories you can tell they'll overlap in some ways and then they'll kind of go in completely different directions in other ways. So you can, I don't know, cover a lot of ground that way. And I just like found these four women who really like in some ways all shared an obsession with crime but then were were quite different on um in their own ways and that just allowed me to look at this subject from a lot of different angles that i that wouldn't have if i had started from like a thesis you know people always kind of ask you know why do women love true crime as if there's like you know a one sentence a pithy one sentence answer and if i would kind of written the book with like with that in mind and with with an answer you know, with a TED talk, um, it would have been very different. But this kind of allows me to have multiple overlapping and self-contradictory answers. Yeah, and I, you know, I noticed like just just as I was reading your book, I came home and I, I started asking all the women I know just that question: Why? Mm. Do you, why do you think women are so drawn to this? Like, what what jumps out at you? And they said they are. And I said, well, yeah, like crime con. When you when I was watching it in, in the the Michelle McNamara documentary, it looked like ninety five percent women. And yeah, I mean, the, I went to True Crime. I mean, to sorry to CrimeCon um, the one year in twenty eighteen, I think it was in Nashville in this insane hotel, um, and I would say like definitely ninety ninety plus percent women, and mostly, although not exclusively, white women. Right. Well, I want to get to that because that that is such an interesting rabbit hole that you went down there about the whole issue of claiming the space of victimhood and how that impacted the judicial system and, and prisons and all that. But but before I even get there is I found it so interesting. Um, one of the women's first responses, I have a boxing client who's an immigration attorney, is she said, well, did you watch the SNL skit murder show on this exact <laughs> dynamic? And I said, no. So she sent it to me after our boxing lesson. And I thought, oh, this gets so close to the tonality that I saw on display in the McNamara documentary is it's not a somber 
affair. It, it is gleeful, delightful, um, women posing in chalk, like where chalk is laid out for a murder victim. Uh, it, it's photo ops. Like it, it is very much like an uproarious kind of event from how it was depicted in that documentary. Uh, unlike what I would have assumed that it's the, the truth seeking and this kind of somber, serious, sober approach that McNamara herself uses to justify her own obsession with the genre throughout her life. Yeah, I mean, CrimeCon very much has that that fan convention energy, and there's like a lot of you know wine and crime meetups or whatever, and huh. and like you said, yeah, the like posing with a chalk outline of a body, or posing you know in a fake jail cell, or posing you know in a fake mugshot, and a lot of that kind of like fun kind of girly sisterhood, cupcakes and crime, you know, that's sort of the the energy, at least of some people, you know, I don't, it's not everybody, but that's, I mean, I think part of that is also like CrimeCon is like, what are they trying to sell, right? They're trying to like sell a lot of, sell their shows, sell a lot of products. And so there's a certain energy that is like much more, uh, makes people much more amenable to marketing than another kind of energy. But yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people, there is this sense of bonding, sisterhood, you know, like we, us girls, we all get it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever listened to the podcast, My Favorite Murder, but that's strongly the energy. Like they talk a lot about, you know, like dresses with pockets and murder. Right. Yeah. I, and it, it is interesting also because uh, I guess like the introduction to I'll Be Gone in the Dark is written by Gillian Flynn, like a fantastically successful novelist. And she she frames I, I find the framing of all this just so intriguing because it it's always sort of posing what I'm searching for as opposed to what I may be running away from, which seems mm. to be something that you parse a lot in your book. So she says, she begins in her introduction, I love reading true crime, but I've always been aware of the fact that as a reader, I am actively choosing to be a consumer of someone else's tragedy. And I love that we stop at consuming. It's not that Mm. I'm enjoying, I'm just consuming. So like any responsible consumer, I try to be careful in the choices I make. I read only the best. Writers who are dogged, insightful, and humane. I've always thought the least appreciated aspect of a great true crime writer is humanity. So there's all this virtue signaling in the introduction that seems to elide what are some of the criticisms or observations that you you made, which is there's enjoyment in the suffering of others, um, that I often don't remember the victims like, I mean, that, that was something when, mm-hmm. I, when I was DMing you about Twin Peaks that stood out, even without me knowing it stood out, is we, we're not just talking about who Laura Palmer, who killed Laura Palmer, which, by the way, was watched by over 60 million Americans at the time that it came out in 1990, 60 million. Yeah. Um, but we're asking who was Laura Palmer, and we're exploring that question through the shared collective grief of the town who's lost her. We're exploring her complexity and and um, di- dynamicism. Problems conjugating that word. Um, just how dynamic she was, and I just thought, Jesus, David Lynch is really saying that all of these victims are just there for transactional cons- consumption, in almost all the ways that we are presented victims in television. Is who's chasing them? Who killed them? 
And then as soon as we solve that, we move on to the next convenient victim in order to enjoy another trial and pursuit in everything. But we don't care about the victim and we almost never remember their names. Yeah, I mean, there's a really great book by a wonderful writer named Alice Boland called Dead Girls. And she writes about specifically how this manifests in, in TV and this phenomenon mm -hmm. of like the the dead girl, dead woman being this kind of shocking plot point that, you know, is important kind of because she sets the plot in motion. But, you know, she's always kind of almost this she's a she's a prop or a plot engine and not so much like an an actual person and the people that we're actually following are the are usually the detectives at least right in that sort of tv format you know and we're looking for the killer but um but it's interesting because i feel like there's a new there's there's an increasing awareness of this in the world of true crime and so now there's um, you'll see a lot more attention paid to victims or at least like kind of lip service to it. Um, and sometimes it makes me, sometimes, sometimes it makes me, I don't know, it, it feels so pro forma to me. You know, they'll be like, oh, you know, Laura Palmer or whatever. She, her, she loved playing soccer and her friends remember her infectious laugh. And, you know, there's like always like sort of a, an obligatory paragraph and it's always like a little bit generic. And, but this idea of, you know, centering, centering the victims and victim centered true crime is like very much um, in the discourse now. And, you know, I guess it's like better than, than not having it, but sometimes to me, it seems like a really, I don't know, sort of like a cynical way to kind of quickly um, respond to the objections that people raise about the genre without really, you know, looking at the maybe like the fundamental rot that might be there, right. you know, just in the genre, like as conceived. Well, well, and I thought I thought that's exactly what Flynn is trying to get at is essentially a prophylactic explanation <laughs> totally. of what she's looking at. It's I don't it's like if I said to you, like, I, I, I do look at porn, but I only look at the highest end variety of <laughs> pornography where women are paid absolutely above, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You'd be like, what the hell? kind of a, a, an explanation is that like this is yeah. really bizarre or when I'm trophy hunting I only do it ethically when I kill lions I, I only want an old lion and that, that the village is fed in Africa when I go there it has nothing to do with this orgasmic delight I have when I shoot an animal that has no yeah. chance to escape so I, I just found that even even with McNamara it kept coming back to um like just some interesting things I wanted your expertise to just to kind of parse a little bit. Um, yeah, it's like this conscious consumer thing. Like everybody, you know, you everybody feels so insecure about what they purchase. So you have to, you know, have like ethical dish soap or whatever. And right. Um, and part of the thing, like people always ask me when I when I was doing events for the book, people would always sort of ask me in the Q&A, you know, like what's OK, like what's basically my checklist for ethical true crime? And I I grew to really not like that question. I, I think people are coming. I understand where people are coming from. And it's like a, a version of a question that I ask myself. But I'm just like, this is a the reason that we're drawn to these stories is like, I don't know if ethics is like the right, necessarily the, the right or the final um, lens through which to look at it. I mean, I do think that we it's there's there is a human 
impulse to look at stories of like suffering, look at stories of taboo, to look at stories of, you know, like violence, like all of that stuff is really quite compelling to us and has been throughout but but there's an history there's like an olympic there's like an olympic i'm sorry i'm sorry to interrupt but there's like an olympic component like i've interviewed a few war journalists on this podcast and i say well like there's crime in your neighborhood in england there's there's injustice all over the place you don't have to go to a war zone necessarily like halfway across the world or, or the olympic thing that gets identified with angelina jolie like there are many people in Los Angeles that are that are orphan children or unwanted mm-hmm. children you could adopt, but you've gone to a country that most Americans don't even can't even identify on a map. You're that altruistic. Seems- right. There's the need for the most extreme version of it. Right. Um, to, and that's you know I think that's definitely something that you're seeing at least. Like I ha- I will have occasional conversations with people who produce true crime television or you know there are all these people out there like questing for stories, questing for content, right? For intellectual property to like make a documentary or a streaming series about. And they, you, you start to like see the escalation um, that, you know, things have to be worse than the last big hit, you know, like, okay, well, Dirty John was about a scammer, but then like he got stabbed at the end. So you can't just have a regular scammer. They also have to, you know, there has to be violence and then it has to have a splashy ending and like oh well this person you know quote unquote only killed four people well that's like that's not enough we need to have some you know dismemberment or like a higher body count for this to like suddenly start to seem shocking or like worthy of attention which i think is really that's that takes you to an alarming place yeah and and i mean it's i mean i found McNamara made it a point point with the Golden State Killer where she said, there's a scream permanently lodged in my throat now, tracking this. And there's a lot of the language, you talk about this in your book also, that it all sounds like addiction. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a little bit euphemistic, but the implication is clearly, I can't stop doing this. And yet I also want credit for how courageous I am to shed a light on it and to highlight victims and that sort of thing, but I also can't stop. And I thought it was interesting, there was a paragraph in particular I wanted to read you that she says, looking at such a man's face is anticlimactic, attaching a name even more so. We know what he did. Any information beyond that will inevitably feel pedestrian, pale, and somehow cliche. My mother was cruel, I hate women, I never had a family, I wanna know I want to know more about true, complete people, not dirty scraps of humans. I thought this is a really interesting comment because you make the point in your section about victims where when you identify who the victim is, really we're just othering like this zero-sum game between them and us. Mm. And I love what she's saying here is that uh, I don't want any sense that this is a complete human being that may be perpetrating these crimes. I really want to care about whole people and victims and what I represent. And yet this is also a woman who is taking drugs that ultimately kill her. She's on Adderall. She's taking Vicodin. She, th- those are in her system when she overdoses on fentanyl. She mentions that she's neglecting her husband and her child in order to obsess over this case. 
And I just thought like that never gets brought up as something like if you're doing it in the same way with a different addiction, alcoholism, drugs, pornography, eating to obesity where it was damaging your health. I think there'd be a lot less sympathy than the trope of the courageous crusader who's going after this killer in a case that essentially is cold and she's not even connected to any of the victims. So it's that much virtue, 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 as opposed to uh, trespassing into something voyeuristically pleasurable or any, you know, like a, a, a harsher way of interpreting it. And, yeah. and so my, my takeaway with, that I wanted to ask you about is what seemed distinctive in her book, where all of this area largely is, uh, you identify, it's, it's all male Men are committing far more murders of men than women. I, I found the, the most recent statistics. I think it was like 14,000 men were murdered to 3,000 women. It's like four to one. Men, uh, mainly male detectives, um, lawyers. Uh, you, you do mention that, that more women now are getting into forensic forensics, like I think se seven out of ten um, in universities, but I just thought it was so interesting that the main character that everybody's talking about with the Golden State Killer is not the killer, it's not the victims, it's her writing the book as like the main narrative that people seem to attach themselves to, which I found fascinating. And it's, it's so funny to me too how her story, which I think is like very like you say, like fascinating in its complexity and in its darkness. And I and I appreciate her as a writer because she will, she doesn't always acknowledge it, but she will acknowledge it. She'll go there. It really has gotten flattened out. And if you ask kind of an average person who, you know, might have some passing familiarity with this story, it's like, oh, Michelle McNamara, you know, became fascinated with this case. And then, you know, she solved it, you know, at the tragic price of her own life. And if you actually look at what happened, it's that's not quite true. You know, she she didn't solve it. And I feel rude saying that because she died, but she didn't. Like if you read that book, all of the, it goes down. I mean, I kind of love it as this strange true crime document because she, you know, she didn't finish it before she died. And so it's has this kind of Frankenstein format where you're you're kind of following her down all of these paths that really she seems very confident you know might lead to the correct answer and like she gets really into geographic profiling at some point it's like this is what we're going to do to find him and it turns out when we actually do find him you know like years later all of that is like completely off base and if she had if she had lived long enough to you know write this book after he was was identified um like most true crime books i don't know they have this real like neatness to them right and and so all of this like obsession and all of this kind of excess that you're talking about um it gets justified by the ending even if you know like it didn't even if that's maybe not like a fair conclusion at least like the narrative can can try to make that point but with her with her story you know it really doesn't it's like her her theories are wrong and then and she burns herself out you know to the point of of her own death and 
not to give her no credit at all, you know, she she did a lot like bringing this case back to attention and focused the police on it. And then the police, you know, through doing this DNA stuff, figured it out. And without her pressuring them and, and bringing attention to it, that wouldn't have happened. So I'm not saying she had nothing to do with it being solved, but it's like that you're right that there's usually there's this kind of really limited story that gets told where it's like my my obsession um my going too far with this is you know justified because you know because of the victims well, um, they often get kind of thrown out in front of being like no i'm doing it for them even if they're like like you said not involved at all they become this excuse or justification or way of you know like not not looking at you know the self the the person you know like not not interrogating the obsession because it you you sort of exonerate the obsession instead of interrogating it right and and i guess i guess like that's what i thought you did so interestingly and that's why i keep coming back to this a little bit is because nothing that i read in terms of the response to her work or the documentary even her husband like in in the afterword of the book patton oswald he says he's talking about all oh, the cases dragging her under and this curiosity is just clawing at her but she's hunting and and she even acknowledges that this is doing some damage to her health and i'm like and your marriage and your <laughs> and your child who she's yeah. neglecting um you i thought because a thing that you're getting at that i think like even when we began talking about this is what is the actual motivation seems to be something that we're very uncomfortable talking about. Like we, 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 everything seems like a cover story a little bit. And I thought yeah. it was so interesting with Michelle because I think a huge aspect that drew people into her story is she talks about her obsession beginning in Oak Park, a very white, affluent, where Ernest Hemingway was born neighborhood. Uh, a, a woman was murdered at random by somebody who was never found. And she immediately goes to the crime scene and she's hooked on, on this. And the next scene she paints for us about what drew her to, to this kind of subject matter is her wedding day. She doesn't talk about anything positive to do with her wedding to Patton Oswalt. <laughs> she, she just says that what spoiled the day for her, and I think this is very telling, is that she overheard one of her friends talking to her mother saying that, that she was the most talented writer that they knew. And mm. her mother's response is to say, but don't you think it's too late for her? Wow. And what I thought was interesting about this, uh, I did a, a half-assed amount of research, is she went to Los Angeles to write for TV, but I can't find any credits for anything that she wrote professionally. I can't find anything until she started writing about the Golden State Killer where she has a, a clip anywhere. And so that motivation to be heard, to be seen, the crusader on all of that, like her identity is is very nebulous until this becomes all all consuming for her. Yeah, I mean, I think you see that with a lot of the... Um the, the the obsessions that I write about is sort of like it's it's a life it's some sort of like proxy or projection like the the case right the, you know the case that becomes the obsession is a way of getting getting attention getting recognition getting justice 
getting um, sympathy, getting revenge, getting like any of these any of these things that a, that the the person, the woman, and all of the cases that I write about um, can't quite access in her own life then becomes like this the case kind of becomes the the means through which those things are achieved in this roundabout ricocheting um kind of way and and i don't say that to and i think that's i don't know i think that's how a lot of us live our lives i'm not saying that as if it's like that's a shameful thing um but what i do think what i do find frustrating is you know this thing that you've brought up of of constantly rather than admitting that or, or looking into that or, or questioning that it's the um, this defensiveness that sometimes comes up in the world of true crime where it's like how how dare you you know my my cause is so important you know there's somebody died maybe many people died you know how dare you question me of course what I'm doing here is is pure and noble and not self-serving at all and it's like right. no, everything that we do is self-serving you right. know like what isn't it much more interesting to like look at what's self-serving about it um, than to sort of refuse to uh, to bridle at the, the suggestion. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at. I mean, the, the last point I want to make about McNamara before I turn specifically to, to the subject matter of your book is she concludes that article that got her the book deal by saying, in the past when people have asked whether it worries me that the killer may still be out there, I've waved dismissively pointing out that he'd be much older now. He can't hurt me, I say, not realizing that in every sleepless hour, in every minute spent hunting him and not cuddling my daughter, he already has. And I thought, wow, you, you instead of this being tourism or voyeurism or, or like what Gillian Flynn says at the beginning of the book in terms of like we're consuming other people's trage- tragedy, now she's a part of the tragedy. She's one of the victims. Even though she's elected to be that, she's making it seem like there was no choice. That's why I think I'm so glad you wanted to talk about this book, because my immediate reaction on reading it. Well, you know, I read it before he was caught. I remember I was actually reading it in Halifax when I was going to the the sentencing of one of the women that I write about in the book. Hmm. So I was like staying up late, feeling really freaked out. Um, I remember like waking up in the middle of the night and going to lock the doors because I hadn't locked the doors. but it's a much stranger book than people give it credit for because it has this sort of because it's unfinished because it you know her her pardon shaping it ended with her death because it was published before the golden state killer was caught you know because it has these multiple authors like it's it's so clearly is like being pushed to be this kind of standard true crime blockbuster but there are all of these elements which mostly have to do with her death and and the negative impact that you know dealing with this case had on it that just really kind of pull against that that triumphant you know like kind of happy ending narrative and I most people don't seem to read it that way but if you actually like look at what's there she, yeah she's like there's it's so much darker and less complete and more ambivalent than people give it credit for, not on purpose. You know, it's right. one of those books that kind of tells on itself, which is sometimes my favorite kind of book. No, me too. And I mean, I was I was asking like my wife as I was kind of raising some of these points, I was saying, if it was a man who was selfishly doing this and neglecting his wife and his, his newborn child, would I be as critical of her 
of him in the way that I feel like she she's talking about uh, her eighth wedding anniversary. Patton Oswalt, who's supplying her with, um, she's she's in an office. He's bringing coffee to her. He sounds incredibly attentive and supportive of her, and he's he's proclaiming at their wedding anniversary uh, a life of a rogues gallery for you to further pursue, and it pisses her off. She goes, <laughs> "No, it's just this guy," and what becomes really clear is it's not just this guy, and, and for any of the people involved. It's in, almost incidental who the killer is. It's this need to get out of their own life and to examine their own life and deal with their own shit. Then, then you know, this. I'm not saying this guy isn't the most attractive character, but I mean, I couldn't help thinking after seeing a wonderful documentary um, by what what's it called, The Grim Sleeper, about maybe the most prolific serial killer in, in American history, but he's African-American and ex- almost exclusively targeted African-American prostitutes. And it got almost no press coverage ever. Nobody cared. Yeah. Uh, Nick Broomfeld, that's who, that's who directed it. And I mean, even the police regularly used a call sign, uh, NHI, no human involved, when these right. prostitutes were discovered murdered. And I just thought, isn't it interesting like what you, what you zero in on is who gets to occupy the space of sort of, for lack of a better word, the most desirable vic- victim. It's this sort of upper middle class white woman. And, and I just thought, I never thought about it in those terms, but like when you map out the implications of how the judicial system and the political me- machinery zeroes in on that, and sort of not galvanizes it, but like weaponizes it in terms of what is going to get people elected through ultimately distorting the perception of crime rates um, by amplifying a perception that is not in any way aligned with the actual data. I just thought, Jesus Christ, like this is so heavy and just kept reminding me of that Freudian quote that drives are silent. <laughs> like the, clo- mm-hmm. the clo- closer it is to us, we don't see it. Yeah, I mean, and that was another thing I really wanted to do with this book is that I think true crime, it's getting much more critical attention now than it used to and then, than it did when I started writing the book. Um, but it was often like very much kind of dismissed as, you know, trashy entertainment. And so, you, you know, you either it was either your guilty pleasure or you just kind of condemned people for, for liking this trash. And what was really clear to me, the more that I started looking into it, it was how these um, narratives, whether they're in, you know, paperback novels or paperback books that you buy at the airport or a podcast or, you know, a HBO miniseries or whatever, like they really are shaping our um, political response to crime too. Like those things are not, are not separate. And um, these, the narratives, um, you know, the, the, the books and the stories that are coming out like in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, like the tabloid TV shows like Inside Edition and um, the stories that they are fixating on, like that's working in tandem with the Reagan administration, which is putting out, you know, hosting all these task forces on violent crime and congressional hearings on serial killers and and this um, political work that is shaping the policies that we live with today. You know, those things are not like, those things are inseparable from each other in a way. And, and both of them, you know, it's so clear in the um, 80s in particular, you know, this this imagination of, you know, what a victim was, was so 
um, overwhelmingly white and female, um, even though that was, you know, as you said before, like was and is not representative of who is actually a victim of violence um, in the country. But it's just, um, it's just it, it, like unrelenting. And and you start to hear also like the Reagan era, like this this idea of the innocent victim is a phrase that they use a lot. You hear it less now, but I think it's like, in some ways it's just seeped into our cultural consciousness that we don't even need to say it. And the idea there, you you know, as soon as you start to pick it apart, it's like really horrifying, right? It's the right. idea is like, well, okay, if you're not an innocent victim, then what are, you're a guilty victim, you know, the, but the idea being like, yeah, some people, if they don't deserve to be murdered, then it's like, well, it's kind of your fault because, you know, of where you lived or who you are or who you married, you know, or what you do, you know, how you make money. Um, That's such an interesting point to go to, too, because like like where we started here talking about Mike Tyson, one of the things I thought, why do I need another documentary about Mike Tyson? I want to hear more about Desiree Washington, which was kind of date rape for the first time being part of the national discussion. Mm. And... America failed horribly in having any sympathy for this woman that had this immaculate background for the most part. And it was just gold digger. Like every cliche, vicious cliche you could hurl at her was was like it was just sympathizing with this powerful guy. And I mean, I was. And just, I would say even if she didn't have an immaculate background, you know, like. No, no, I, I mean, in, I, in I bring... some ways, like, people without immaculate backgrounds in some ways are, like, more vulnerable to sexual violence. Um, totally. I didn't mean it. Know? I didn't mean it in that way. I meant more the irony of uh, a Sunday school teacher who's a volunteer at Baptist church churches and stuff like that actually had... He, Tyson actually was invited to give speeches against her. And, and you'd have people barking threats at her and stuff like wow. that. Or Louis Farrakhan. I just thought, wow, like the people that she has given so many countless hours to support are turning their backs on her for this bigger celebrity. It was more what I meant. I didn't, I didn't mean that, as you're saying, like a purity test of who's a real victim. I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. Yeah, no, no I, and I, 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 understand. I just wanted to say that. But I think, yeah, I mean, it's... <sighs> It's so upsetting because it just makes it clear how like fundamental um, racism or, you know, like sexism and racism intertwined are, you know, you could how how quick we were and hopefully to a lesser extent are, but probably still are to perceive certain people as, you know, not innocent, whether depending like irregardless of like what they have actually what their life has actually been like. Um, there's just such a deep. We're so we're just so tainted as a culture with racism that you know you look at a black woman it doesn't matter what what her act what actually her reality is but it's you know harder to perceive her as innocent. And, and is, is it isn't it interesting when there is a kind of collision between these two things? Like I was just thinking, like when Amy Cooper is in Central Park and becomes this quote unquote Karen for calling in a bird watcher and everything that I, I feel threatened and all of that. And I thought, boy, at a time where the Me Too movement is kind of at its apex in Believe All Women, the joy that people had exposing her as a liar, exploiting mm. her privilege. And I thought, is this the only time we're permitted to question? Is that racism would transcend 
<laughs> like like that that's the only way it was just a very interesting confusing moment for these competing interests totally yeah i mean and i think that a lot like a lot of times the um the sort of more shallow true crime um the takeaway is you know kind of like if you s see something say something you know it teaches you to be suspicious and on guard and to look for signs that you know something right isn't happening and somebody is you know, secretly a murderer, secretly a kidnapper, and, right. and it kind of filters into the the kind of QAnon human trafficking paranoia, you know, the sense that the, the world is sort of full of um, malevolence, you know, at the same time, we have this kind of anti-Karen discourse, right, this idea that there are people out there, you know, who are just constantly on guard and suspicious and looking for an excuse to play a victim play a victim, report, you know, right to next door, get somebody arrested, do whatever. So and, and, and even with the Amy Cooper thing, I thought it was fascinating. No media could cover that story without pointing out that this African-American bird watcher also was a Harvard graduate. Right. <laughs> so lest you assume it's, it's like a lower quality person who was right. victimized. It's fascinating just the, the implicit racism and sort yeah. of dog whistling to that. Um, so I love that you start off with the book talking about the, the oxygen network that they improved their ratings by 43% in 2015 by creating this true crime blog. And within two years, this all crime all the time and viewership skyrockets. While at the same time, um, the murder rate is plummeting to historic lows. Uh, I thought that was so interesting because it's like when I was a little kid, maybe this was the case for you, I was inundated at school with the perceived threat of kidnappers being everywhere. Mm -hmm. And my dad's a child protection lawyer. And I asked him, like, what, what is the dad? How many kids are getting kidnapped? And he said, well, it's like 99% runaway and parental abduction. Like this, this threat that's being marketed to you, it, it happens but it's it's the least of your work. Like this is not happen. This is razor blades in your Halloween candy. Of course, it's a parent's worst nightmare. But this is not a reasonable threat. This is like being afraid of every plane flying over you. It's going to crash into you or something. I'm exaggerating, but but you take my point that this yeah. amplification of the threat, this boogeyman that's out there. Um, it made me just think that like the essence of security is an obsession with the intruder. And why we're moving into this place of just being terrified all the time, despite the fact that we know the impact is we have a generation of kids that have record-breaking amounts of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation, very likely as a result of what we're, we're perpetrating on them. Yeah, and, you know, by orders of magnitude, who is most likely to harm a child, it's not a stranger in a van, it's somebody in their own family. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so often the case with these true crime stories, these, the obsession with, you know, the, the serial killer who's preying on um, strangers or the, the stranger danger, you know, the, the bad guy sure. with the van. Like in some ways, I think our fear of those characters who um, exist, but in a, much smaller degree than like their cultural resonance would would have you think. Um, that's because there's there's a more realistic fear that's closer to home that I think is like 
even scarier, you know, like it's, mm. it's actually like more horrifying to think as, as horrifying as it is to think of a stranger kidnapping your child. It's more horrifying to think that, you know, your husband or your father is like raping that child, you sure, know, sure. even though that is much more likely. And so in some ways, I think that true crime story, it, I mean, boogeyman is like the right word for it. It's like, look over there at that scary thing. Don't actually look at what is much more likely, much more common, um, and in its own way, like more chilling. Right, 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 right. Um, and you you talked earlier, and you, you mentioned this a fair bit in your book too, about the perception of, of women's attraction to, to true crime being dismissed as trashy, voyeuristic, shallow. And I thought, isn't it, isn't it quite possible that it's the opposite that might speak to that? That it's women's women's more powerful ability to empathize that would draw them into this than perhaps men. I mean, like I get like men's attachment to sports and like the areas of, of this, of society or entertainment that are overwhelmingly male. Um, but I thought like this seem this subject seems to prey upon empathy more than sort of trashy cupcake kind of stuff like, like that in, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are definitely like degrees of nuance with the empathy, right? Like there's this sort of blunt empathy. You know, there's true crime that like seems more like a, a soap opera in its, um, you know, emotional nuance where you're just sort of like, you can tell who's evil. Like there people are either sort of like evil monsters or um, what's the phrase they use on my favorite murder? Sweet baby angels or something, right. you know, like very kind of blunt characterizations good guys bad guys um and then there's true crime that is that is much more nuanced and you know but there was like a whole era like there was a long period where true crime was much more marketed towards and, and consumed by men you know but that's like tends to be more that's like the the mid-century gangster bootlegger kind of those those stories is a sort of a different well, and it, it's, a different flavor, you know, and it and yeah. it is when it starts to become when the stories start to become more more domestic and more focused on um, interpersonal relationships that it skews more the audience skews more female. Do you? Well, yeah, and I mean, I mean, all I think a very common thread with the best selling movies is that love stories are at the heart of them, mm. right? And I, I think now women are reading seventy percent of all books purchased are women. It's a female-dominated consumer base mm-hmm. now, which is interesting. Um, but I wonder, did what was how would you how would you gauge by gender the popularity of In Cold Blood? Oh, I have no idea. It's a very good question. I don't know, right? That's because is that a more male-centric? Because seems it seems not. Like my grandmother, that was her favorite book when she, when it was published in the, in what was it the fifties? I think. Um, yeah, I'd be really curious to know. I mean, in in some ways, like if you if you read kind of pre sort of earlier accounts of women being interested in crime, it's it's sort of. Anytime a woman is interested in crime, it's like act, acted as if it's an anomaly or as if it's like remarkable because, you know, like, oh, women, they're the softer sex. They're not as interested in violence. And and so, you know, the fact that some women, you know, were fascinated by Jack the Ripper or, you know, went to this, you know, the, the Lindbergh kidnappers trial or, you know, something like that. Um, 
was itself notable, even if there were more men there than women. Um, so I'd be really curious to know if like, you know, what the, what the breakdown was of In Cold Blood and yeah. back in the day. Because it's so day. domestic and, and elucidates so much of that family and their innocence and remoteness and it's so white bread and such a safe community and the trust that's there and everything and, right, right. and the violation exactly. of that. But at the same time, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it almost seems like he falls in love with one of the killers. So you get a tremendous amount of empathy with killers that I don't think had ever been present before in, in the literature of true crime. Yeah, that's another book that I really like because it tells on itself, you know? That's yeah. like another one that's, you know, you, definitely not perfect, but what makes it not perfect is what makes it really interesting. Yeah. Um, and what do you make when you, you go to CrimeCon, you see <laughs> that there is uh, an exhibition wall covered with post-its asking people to submit what their reasons are for coming to CrimeCon. I love this, that CrimeCon is concerned on some level with... How do you? How would you like us to see what your motivation is for being here, for for joyfully attending this celebration of true crime? Like I thought, wow, that seems so like almost like Vince McMahon professional wrestling weird. Well, it's such a gift for a writer too. Like sure. for a writer writing a book, like why are people so interested in true crime? You're like, well, they wrote it down and put it on a post-it note at the wall. And I mean, I and I just I loved how how various. And some were very sincere, some were kind of jokey, um, some were really, you know, very emotional. You could get a sense that some people were, were there from anger and, and some people were there just there to have a good time. And it really kind of, I, I appreciated the um, range of responses that were there on the wall that kind of helped me, helped me make that point that it's like, well, this is... There are all sorts of things bringing people bringing people here, you know, to the same place, but from many different paths and maybe with very different desires. Right, and I mean, and when you talk about in the the section about victims and that largely our perception being shaped and marketed about who who is the most, I guess, desirable victim in society for the media at least to glom onto that this massively galvanizes mass incarceration. And I just thought it was intriguing because like, I, I really enjoyed a podcast called, I think it was Running From Cops. Oh, so good. So good. And it was the first time I ever heard that the police force actually had final cut on yeah. everything that was on that show. And I just thought, my, like, who the hell would agree to that other than the most cynical <laughs> like exploiter of, yeah. of such a such an important issue and just didn't give a flying fuck about it. Yeah. And also the thing I remember from that is like how the police start it becomes a strange collaboration where, you know, at certain points the producers are kind of helping catch people and then the cops themselves are trying to help the producers by like how, you know, how can we make this arrest, you know, more exciting, more cinematic, you know, more worthy of screen time. And so there just is this like really toxic collaboration between the production production and the police. Um, it's like a nightmare. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about, you have this wonderful section where you talk about how this, this space that victims get to occupy, essentially it leads to victims and criminals becoming two distinct categories of people with diametrically opposed interests. 
Victims are righteous innocents whose violation needs to be honored and whose safety needs to be guaranteed, while offenders are unrepentant, unredeemable figures who profited from a naively lenient system. <laughs> the two sides are locked in a zero-sum game where any concessions made to criminal defendants are seen as a loss for victims, and supporting victims becomes equated with tough-on-crime. Yeah, this whole section kind of, part of it at least came out, I mean, a lot of it is about the Manson family or the Manson murders, but this part of it came out of my research into the victims' rights movement, which was, you know, this movement that came out in the, came out of the feminist movement and, and advocating for, you know, better procedures and policies for handi- handling sexual assault cases, which the police did it an even worse job of in the 70s, if you can imagine. Sure. Um, but then really like curdled into this, um, I would argue like anti-feminist um, movement um, that you sort of, that, that quote is kind of starting to get at where um, this idea that, you know, you have, you know, victims need rights. Like, even the idea of like a victim's rights movement is was um, in op- positioned in opposition to, you know, this growing rights that criminal defendants had coming out of the Warren court, you know, in the 60s. Um, but if you actually look at the statistics, like violent victims of violent crime and perpetrators of violent crime, like tend to come from the same communities. This yeah. this idea of you know a perpetrator coming from the outside, you know, breaking into your home, breaking into your community, whatever. Like that's just statistically. I mean, of course it happens, but it's statistically not what really tends to happen. Um, and many people who have committed violence have also themselves been victims of violence. You know, these are not these are not sort of two opposing worlds locked, you know, in an internal fight. They're they're very much overlapping and intertwined. And so this idea that, you know, like giving rights to criminal defendants is taking them away from victims or vice versa is I think so harmful because all of the like or a lot of the kind of tough on crime policies that were passed at least in part for the victims you know under the lobbying efforts of the victims rights movements and passed you know quote unquote for victims like ended up harming a lot of victims too right you know and i think that's what gets missed is um this you're 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 kind of punishing vulnerable people um or putting you know increasing their vulnerability Right. And I, I think also, I mean, it's interesting now because I don't think we talk about it a lot as we push for diversity, very necessary diversity with gender and, and ethnicity, socioeconomic diversity is has never been worse in journalism. Like, I mean, with mm-hmm. unturned internships, you know, only recently being removed. But I mean, everybody seems to have the same CV in terms of what where they went to school and, and who their parents were in terms of their professional status. And I think this is interesting because there's no shared lived experiences with the victims that are being covered, with the people mm. who are covering them. And, and I think you can go back to, let's say, Leopold and Loeb back in 1924. This was considered a recreational perfect crime by two guys who came from immense privilege. Mm-hmm. And that shocked society because wealthy people were essentially thought of as better people. Right. And and crime is sort of something that like if if you are um, if crime happens to you, you know, it's probably somehow your your fault. You know, there's just such a strong tendency to sort of victim blame or be like that. That would never happen to me. 
you know, because of, of who I am or what I do or the decisions that I make, you know, that would, um, and then anytime you see these cases that, that kind of um, undermine that, that they tend to be really well, it's, compelling or they provoke people, they is, provoke people a lot. And is it interesting too, because I was thinking about this, like kidnappings always skyrocket with massive income inequality, always. Mm. There's is a total correlation. It's just like a byproduct of systemic failure. But I thought, isn't that interesting that you have so many ruthless businessmen who essentially are implementing violence by other means through commerce, and then you have commerce by other means with kidnappers through mm. violence. That's really that's cool. I want to turn that one over in my head for a minute. <laughs> But it's, I mean, it's funny because one of the things that I often, my objection to a lot of the the more vapid um, true crime podcasts that are out there is they often, um, the conclusion that they, they go to, you know, they say like, oh, this is all for the victims. And then the cl- conclusion that they go to is, you know, we need to like, it ends up being sort of a tough on crime conclusion one way or another, um, you know. And, and these these are people who sort of are not necessarily, like who are both, who are like doubly insulated, you know, most of the audience for these podcasts, doubly insulated, right? They're, they are not primarily the victims of violent crime and they will also not primarily be the victims of, you know, if we just are living in a more, you know, carceral, tough on crime world, they're also right. not gonna be the victims of that. And so it gets to be, they get to kind of sit removed um, and and call for these kind of punishments. But it seems to me, you know, like you were talking about Samuel Little, the, the grim sleeper who, who killed um, mostly black sex workers. Like the thing I always say is like, oh, if you really want to um, like fight back against serial killers, just like create a lot more legal protections for sex workers. And that would like probably right. solve, you know, that would like get you very far in terms of, you know, undermining serial killers ability to like <laughs> w- operate with impunity, right? Cause they're like, they know what they're doing. They're like, uh, they're they're targeting people who are less likely to go to the police or if they go to the police are less likely to be poli- believed who, you know, are very vulnerable. And so if you make people less vulnerable, you will like make serial killings less possible, but people never want that. That's never, that's like such a, um, I don't know. That never seems to be the answer. Well, no, it's, it's so interesting you say that because, I mean, I had in my notes here, like that very point, like protection protection of sex workers. But at the same time, with the border, the way to solve the border is to spend all of this money on the border, even though I think I think a lot of economists have broken down that if we didn't spend a dollar on border protection, we would have 30% less illegal people coming in because of circular migration, that it's purely these people coming in for work. And if you make it easy for them to come into work and then go back to Mexico, I'm speaking specifically to the Southern border, um, they don't they don't wanna live here. Oh, they, I, yeah, believe me, I've got a whole long speech that I like to give about, like, I do think that what we're doing to migration a lot more is like very reminiscent in a lot of ways of like the war on drugs. That was the next one. That was the next one. Spectacularly, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, that's the next place I was going to go is is how successful are we since since the beginning of the war on drugs? Like you just yeah, you make it's like you you criminalize migration, 
which just means you're like empowering people. It's like instead of dealing with the actual incentives, you just criminalize everything, locking people up, spending an enormous amount of money that just kind of calcifies the problem and empowers the um, you know, the criminal, like the drug cartels that are like, that are now just smuggling cartels. You're just like giving them a ton of money and then sort of being like, wow, this problem keeps getting worse and worse. We should definitely like double down on what we've been doing right. is insane, you know? And it took us so long to like even begin to kind of question, um, the, the, that approach to the war on drugs. And we're still living, you know, with the horrible consequences of that. And it's just to see that, happening at the border is like really, really frustrating and heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and, and drugs have never been cheaper or more accessible <laughs> you know, so, so, yeah. or more potent. Um, and you, you have this incredible statistic. I mean, it's horrifying that since the victim rights movement took off in 1980, California spends 13 percent less on education, while investment in prisons has grown 436 percent. Yeah, I mean, it's just like California is such a, people think of California as such a progressive state, but if you actually look um, at how it's handled um, criminal justice in many ways, it's like this this bellwether state of, um, they, they got very um, punitive, like very fast, and it really, you know, harmed the state, um, just like locking up enormous amounts of people. Yeah, and, and, and last thing I want to touch on, because I, I find this chapter really, really interesting, um, is the Columbine. And I felt like almost half of this chapter, or, or at least it permeates the whole the whole section, is media, which also mm. seems to, to, to permeate the whole book in many respects, is, is how we're looking at this. <laughs> Not just what is happening, but like what, what is influencing the way that we're looking at it. How are we kind of getting in our own way with it? So... With Columbine, I thought it was fascinating that you point out that both of these kids that perpetrated this massacre were already kind of speculating about whether Quentin Tarantino or Spielberg would direct their lives. And yet, on the other hand, Elephant comes out um, by Gus, Gus Van Zandt ends up being the person to make the movie about it. And Bowling for Columbine becomes the most successful documentary mm-hmm. in history. And somebody I've interviewed on the podcast, a friend of mine, DBC Pierre, wins the Booker Prize for Vernon God Little, a 21st century comedy about a school massacre, as it were, as a satire, of course. But I thought, isn't it, isn't it interesting how those shaped our perception of what happened in Columbine? And it almost felt like what happened to Columbine got kind of drowned out, like the specific details and how the media perverted it and and often misreported on so many aspects of it. Yeah, well, one thing that was really striking to me is um, another example of how Columbine kind of was transmuted into pop culture was I write about the, um, I forget what season it was of American Horror Story, but it's, I think it might be the first season. I don't know. I watched it. And there's one of the characters in it is a, um, like a really cute kind of like emo high school boy who's also turns out to be a ghost. Um, and also like, there's a very direct kind of this, this, sorry, this is a spoiler for season one of American Horror Story, which aired a decade ago. Sure. Um, there's like a, a very Columbine reminiscent um, school shooting scene in the library, like a direct Columbine reference. Um, and that a lot of, and then this boy that they cast was so cute and it was like so clearly like a 
romance storyline. I think the girl who moves into the house like falls in love with this boy, and then it turns out he's a ghost, and then it turns out he's a school shooter ghost. Um, but it's it's kind of played for romance, and so then there becomes this whole online subculture of of girls, you know, being a fan of this character, and and some some of them were like so young that they didn't even know that Columbine was a real like had really happened you know, to them. It was always, it was only this kind of pop culture response to it. Like it, it, they had, they had no sense of it as like an, an actual event. It had become such a, I don't know, like a meme of a kind. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of the, the world we're living in today. It's just become so, I don't know, refracted and retold and, um, we've made so much out of it that the original thing is sort of not there anymore. Yeah, it's been really weird. I've, I've been, I just finished a six-part documentary on Rome, and I know mm-hmm. that that is the cliche stand-in for the United States, but I was like mm-hmm. 95% living below the poverty line at the height of Rome's success. One in three are slaves. Con- mm-hmm. Constant inflation everywhere. Oh. And where gladiatorial combat, when things were kind of on the rise, was two days a year. As it moved into decadence, it was like almost two-thirds of the year. Whoa. And I was just thinking, fuck, like, <laughs> how do we not learn from any of this? Like, like how, we're moving in exactly the same direction, like, on, in every area. And unfortunately, unlike Constantine, like, we, we're already a Christian nation. So we can't use that as glue <laughs> to magically solve all our real problems because we've already used it and it's not working so well. We need some new cult, some exciting new cult. <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah, it seems like we might have one in 2024. So you do not sound terribly <laughs> optimistic about where we're going. Um, no, I think <laughs> it's hard to feel optimistic now, but... You know, I don't know. I was just talking about this with some friends last night. Like, I think that there's also a very um, understandable human tendency to sort of feel like of every generation to feel like it's living in end times. And I think some of that is, you know, like I can't imagine the the world existing after me. So, you know, surely this, you know, with me comes the apocalypse. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I think things always change. And I think Sometimes I find a certain uh, solace in the idea of world without humans. Um, <laughs> I think that, that that could be a nice world, right? I mean, as so, long as there's still, as long as there's still world. cats kicking around, I'd be happy. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, where where do you where do you think this this subject that you covered in this book and put all this time and energy into? Where does true crime go? Like, what is that? Like, what I mentioned as a corollary mm. with the Colosseum. And as as your society is in flames, like, let's just go watch a bunch of animals get killed and men and women slaughter each other and they can reenact battles where we were glorious. Um, I wonder, like, is true crime our version of that? Like, let's just throw it up on Netflix and, and watch some watch some people that have are dealing with a lot worse things than we are. Is that the escapism on some level? I mean, I think that's some part of it. And I think there's also the 
the the strain of true crime that's you know again is kind of playing into that that kind of paranoid conspiratorial um we need we need more order we need there's crime everywhere we need to give the police a lot more money we need to lock people up and and make things you know more controlled and stricter um but i think you know honestly if i look out there and and then there's plenty of kind of like decadent self-righteous um true crime amateur you know sort of like horrifying amateur investigations i don't know that i like really find upsetting you know there's like a lot of that but there's also there's a lot of like smart kind of critical takes on it i think people i i i don't know i like to think of people as like smart media consumers some people at least you know and 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 people are kind of out there pointing out the the blind spots of the genre and everything that it leaves out and everything it's not telling you and all the sort of hidden messages um unspoken the things that go unspoken um and that makes me feel hopeful you know i people sometimes act as if like i want to like my book is critical of true crime and as if like i think it shouldn't exist and i'm like no i'm just as you know voyeuristic and intrigued by violence you know is the next human being i just want to be like a, a critical consumer of it you know i think you just seemed the the first person that i've really read at, at length who was self-reflective about what you yeah. were drawn to i mean i started to i started to think that you know oxygen and this idea of true crime all the time and and the, you know these these television networks that just have these very similarly structured um programs on they started to they kind of lull you right they, yeah. they the repetition and the and the sameness even if the details are are different and i just i personally don't want to have and that's what true crime was for me for a while you know it was like a thing if i had a bad day i'd like come on and turn it on it was sort of like bleach my brain you know right, right. and and i came to really not like that instinct and not want to not want to have that kind of dissociated relationship with violence anymore and that doesn't mean like i don't want to i'm pure you know or something and i like only consume virtuous um politically acceptable stories now it doesn't mean that at all but it just means like i don't i don't want to consume them with like my brain turned off you know i just want to consume it with my brain turned on and that's all i think and i think there are more people out there trying to do that and so that is the one thing that does make me feel hopeful, I guess. No, no, me too. And I mean, like reading somebody who is self-reflective and, and, and honest about what they're drawn with. But I just thought like it was weird for me to enter in to the, the Michelle McNamara thing because in a weird way, it reminded me of – I don't know if you ever read Gay Talisa's book, Thy Neighbor's Life, like an exploration of contemporary American sexuality. But, yeah, like, but a it, long time ago. And it fucking annihilated his family and he had no mm. idea. He's getting hand jobs from like Lexington Avenue um, sex sex shops and stuff like that. And oh no, this is all about research. And and my family, my wife is totally fine with it. My kids are fine with it. And they interviewed him after, and his kids were like, we were almost having a nervous breakdown. 
Like, how, how could you not know the damage this was doing to our family and, and like your wife and our mother? And I just thought, isn't it interesting that that book was savaged for his ins insensitivity and lack of self-awareness about the impact it was having on his family? And Michelle McNamara is, is venerated as a kind of like saint for mm -hmm. what she's doing while leaving her daughter with no mom and, and widowing, w leaving her husband as a widower. No, I'm not saying... I'm going a little too far with it, but nonetheless, I was like, I'm not seeing anybody pointing out that it was selfish, like yeah. even suggesting it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think that's, it's, and it's, and she knows it and it's right there in the text of the book. So I think there's like, if we're not, if society isn't wanting to acknowledge that, that's, that's kind of on us, right? Like the, the mythology of the book has kind of eclipsed the reality of the book in a way that's really quite strange. Yeah, and I mean, even even in the documentary, the closing part of it, I thought it was fascinating. When her husband was notified that he that the killer had been found, his response was, she got him. Not the thousands of people who've been working to, to try to help this along with her contribution, but right. like, that's the attitude. My wife got him. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes to me, the the feeling that feels like the closest when I have three feelings that feel really similar to me are the feeling of, you know, when you're when you're working on a book or you're working on an article or something and that 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 you get kind of obsessed and you do like I personally, I won't say you, I like neglect, I stop doing the dishes and I'm like, I can't clean. I, nobody can expect me to do laundry. I'm like working on something and I get really really focused and obsessive and I'm probably like terrible to my loved ones or maybe not terrible, but just like ne neglectful. There's that feeling, which feels very similar to a certain kind of like internet rabbit hole mm -hmm. that I can fall into. I, you know, it's like often kind of probably like internet stalking somebody that I shouldn't, you know, like an ex's ex or, you know, like <laughs> something like that. And you're just like, I'm going to put together a dossier on this person. Um, and it's also is a similar kind of like searching, compiling information, obsessive, you know, like the rest of the world is blocked out. Um, and I think that's very similar to the like true crime investigator feeling. Um, but like the writing, you can kind of pretend is virtuous. The like internet stalking is not virtuous at all. There's like no way to pretend that it is. And the true crime thing you can, you know, again, it's, another, it's one you can sort of shade over your obsessiveness and neglect of the rest of your life um, and pretend that you're doing something you know, for the good of the world. Yeah, um, and, and you, you make that point about, about all of, uh, not just passively consuming this, but the participation of the marketplace for, for this kind of subject matter, of people wanting to get involved, which I found really interesting. Because it's it's a little different. It's almost like sort of role playing. In, in a, yeah. In again, a way. and I think it, it sort of is a way of, of justifying you know how much time you're spending. Right. Um, it's a you know you're saying like no 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 I'm not just poking around on Facebook for four hours. I'm I'm on the case. Yeah. You t you talked about women losing jobs, alienating family members, one spending one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on phone calls to prison, um, which I had to think like. Whenever you watch the true crime documentaries about these horrific serial rapists and murders, it's it's always like an accent 
in the story about how how many groupies they get. Yeah, but I believe that that hundred fifty thousand dollars. I think that was um, Lori Davis, and that, that she's they're still married twenty years on, and huh. he was exonerated, and you know, or he wasn't exonerated, but he was he he is innocent, and you know, got released from prison, and they're working to exonerate him. So you know, that one's a little complicated. No, no, it it, it just seems it doesn't seem to work the other way around. Not that there are right. very many female serial killers, but it doesn't seem like it becomes a massive recruitment poster for male groupies. Yeah, I mean, I think because in some ways, like the male, the male killer, um, at least as he's like the archetype of it, um, of him is this is this kind of ultra masculine figure. You know, all the bad things about masculinity, the violence, but also the the control and the power and all that, and that is you know alluring to some people. I mean, it's like sure. it's like the most kind of gross version of a of a gender role is like the incarcerated killer and the you know love lord woman on the outside totally i mean we started talking with mike tyson i mean mike tyson couldn't get a girlfriend to save his life until he looked like he could beat up anybody and mm. suddenly he had to hire security to keep women away from him Oh my God! Wow. Right. Or or O.J. Simpson after after he gets off of murder made the point to say I've never had women more interested in me, and this is after they think I've murdered my ex-wife. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't even. It's interesting. I mean, I I don't know what it is, but it's just it's hard to ignore. Like something is at work here that is very strange. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of the cases, at least the ones that I know of, of the the particularly persistent um, serial killer groupies, they often tend to have like some history of abuse in their own life, like in their early history. And so there's like something is being enacted or reenacted or or played out there um, in a, you know, in a disturbing way. But it's, yeah. Interesting. It makes its own kind of sense. Uh, last question. What are you working on next? What's another book coming down the pike? Ugh, everybody's always asking me if I'm working on another book. No, I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> I, it's like so hard. I think I have like like um, commitment issues with ideas or something. It's just, you know, writing a book, you just have to really find something that you like want to be entwined with for like five years minimum, you know? And there's nothing that I'm like, I keep kind of being like, this is it. And then being like, nah, I don't know. So I'm just, I'm, I'm the Texas correspondent for the New Yorker at the moment. And that's like, there's plenty of terrible things to write about uh, and they keep coming. So I'm going to at least for now, stick with that. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I, I know what you mean. It can be annoying, that question, but I was curious. No, I wish I had an answer. It's only annoying. I'm only annoying to myself because I'm just like I, I, I want, I want one. I miss. It's like childbirth or something. Like I miss being that consumed with, with one thing. But um, I'm also yeah feeling commitment phobic. <laughs> well, and I, I okay. Really, last question is is <laughs> I um what what took me down this rabbit hole is is I've just signed on to do a, a true crime podcast about a pretty big kidnapping in Canada. And I was aware I, I don't have a female character. The victim is is a mother with kids, but she's never spoken about the crime. And I thought if I'm not able to get her perspective from her, given she's never mm. commented, 
all I'm dealing with is men. And if this, if this marketplace is like 80, 85% women, mm. that's a massive liability. Like that's totally, huh. yeah. You need like a plucky uh, female amateur detective in there. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I just thought it was, uh, what, what is the, what is the way of working around this problem? Because there's just no women involved in the in the case and right. and the crime. And I was just like, oh, well, this is a problem given who the consumers are that you identify yeah. <laughs> in, in, in your your book. So anyway, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. And thanks. It was, it was really fun to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.